Hi everyone and welcome to The Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. So we have a bit of a twist for you tonight on this episode because, as the face would have it, all four of us are in the same room recording this show in each other's presence. And normally we phone in from various corners of uh, North America to record the show and today we're all together. We're together for a retreat. And the silence you hear around me right now is the only silence this room has experienced in the past 48 hours. <laughs> because we've been talking nonstop, laughing hysterically, and we had to, we had to uh, just record some of this and share it with you. So, hi everyone. Hello, Ellie. Hi, hi Jean. Hi, hi Catherine. Catherine. Uh, hi, Jean. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Amanda. Hi, ladies. <laughs> We have squeaky chairs, and we have cups of tea, and we have uh, a plan to share with you tonight. So we're going to be talking about the concept of getting unstuck. We have seriously spent 48 hours talking, and recovery has been undoubtedly the theme, and we thought let's pull out the best bits of our conversation to sort of highlight in what we share with you tonight and we decided getting unstuck is something we kind of kept coming back to is how what do we work on how do we get to it so we broke it down using the trans theoretical model of change uh, <laughs> which basically is a really broad way of looking at whenever we're going through something different in our life we pass through various stages as we make a big change and this is extremely true when it comes to recovery so we thought we'd explore those different stages and talk about what each stage looked like for us. So as an overview, the stages of change are broken down as pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, and action. I was going to say Amanda, but no, action. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine's handwriting is creative. So pre-contemplation. This is the stage where you're not ready, you're not thinking about anything being wrong, you are in the problem, not in the solution yet. So you're kind of unaware. So I guess if we think back to what that stage was like for each of us, um, pre-contemplation. Ellie, what did that look like for you? I think for me, pre-contemplation was a general even vague sense that something in my life was off balance, that it wasn't right. But I was not exploring inward for the problem. I was sort of looking circumstantially around at the people in my life and the situations and my job and my relationships. Um, but it, I would carry with me a sense of unease or imbalance or anxiety quite a bit. But at this phase, certainly not only was the thinking about my drinking being at the root of the problem, not in my consciousness, nor was I part of the problem. It was, I felt as though it was the, the things surrounding me or happening to me. And so I began to, it was, a, it was a great phase of deflection for me, kind of, if only this person would act differently, if only this job wasn't so stressful, if only this, I was in a mad, it was a very, a profound seeking stage for me, but without ever looking inward at myself. Right. To address that I'm a, common denominator in any situation I put myself I couldn't into. understand why things kept getting worse so like yeah. things were so hard and it was like you know yes I was married to an active alcoholic and so I did I pinned a lot on to him for sure 
But, you know, it was like, why am I so stuck? Why is this so hard? I'm working so hard and everything is a struggle for me. And, and then even when I had consequences, um, they were really, I normalized them. Like I, I was a blackout drinker from kind of the get go. It It got worse over time, but like, how was I never alarmed that I was, I had blacked out, um, you know, and when I, I, when I lived in a different city, I never got caught, but I drove drunk and I knew like how challenging that would be. And, and one time actually, it, I, this is just occurring to me. I had the tiniest of fender benders where I was at a stop sign and I thought the guy was going and I had had a few drinks and I kind of hit the gas and I just sort of like, it, it didn't cause any damage, but it was enough of like a little bump that I was like, shoot, I almost swore on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, crumb. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I jammed some Altoids into my mouth and was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And like, and it was nighttime. So like, and nothing happened, but like I normalized consequences. Mm. Like, Growing up, or being hungover at work, or whatever. Question, Catherine: Is that because you sort of, in some way, thought that alcohol was the solution? That that was part of the solution to fixing the things that were wrong in your life? Not only that, that through line carried through 15 years of alcoholic drinking, where I was like, "You would drink too if you had my life. My mm. life is so hard, and I deserve this, and I work so hard." And, my marriage is so challenging and um so it's it's more than just rationalizing it's actually defending yeah, yeah. oh yeah absolutely just, like it's a it's a reward it's a it's something i deserve yeah it's a, it's a because it does work at first let's it does face it. Yeah, yeah it does first. help at first and then it really doesn't right right I did this, um, which you hear a lot. I surrounded myself with people who drank like me. And yes. I really didn't want to hang out with you unless you didn't. Yeah. Uh, unless you drank like I did. Because I, you know, I, to me it was like, oh, that person's boring. Like, why would I hang out with them? And, you know, and I, I was sitting here as we were talking about it. I'm like, oh, I didn't really have that. But I did because I had, I'd wake up in the morning with this inc- immense sense of dread. Yeah. Of like, what did I do the night before? I was always, always asking, uh, you know, trying to actually, I wouldn't even ask. I would like kind of tiptoe around my husband yes. to mm-hmm. see like, is he mad at me? Is he happy with me? Like I'd look for evidence of what I had done because I was the same as you, Catherine. I would, I was a blackout drinker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and, um, not necessarily every night, but when I was going for it, like on the weekends or something, I mean, or actually, yeah, and, Eventually, that, that's yeah, snuck, and that snuck into the week too. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, I would, and, and it, but it wasn't every night. But I would black out, and I wouldn't have, I'd have to feel what was happening, and I would just have this immense sense of dread. And then, I then the worst feeling in the world to me was being told what I did the night before. Oh, I, I like hated that. And um, was it worse than the you were fine, like text yeah. message, like. <laughs> No, you were fine. And like that, yeah, that's a horrible word. (laughs) The other part of this that I remember in this phase also was the um, possessiveness. 
about alcohol. Mm-hmm. Okay. A, I would it's never, legal. I would never go to an activity that didn't involve alcohol. Yeah, you same go to the here. Movies, no thanks. But also, mm. you know, we'd go out to dinner with three friends and they'd order a bottle of wine, and I'd get that little jolt of almost like panic, like, well, who, that's for me. What are you guys? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and watching the levels in everybody's glass. But it was so. It, but it, when can I order my next one? How much can I order without people noticing? But it wasn't even in a. I don't want them to know that I drink too much. It was kind of in a. But this, I need this. Like this is not. It was a. It didn't come with any shame or guilt or defensiveness, really, as much as it came with like this is this is what I do. You know? Yeah, it's, it's I have totally to manage normal. this. I, I have manage to. It. I manage yeah. this. I I actually attacked it in the way I was like little Miss Ballsy, where it's like well, I don't care what you're doing, I'm getting another drink, and so mm-hmm. I I would like almost like belittle the people that were with me, like well, you, I'm getting another drink. I don't know about you, like you yeah. can join in and be cool like me. Yeah. <laughs> peer or, pressure or you can be a loser, whatever. It's, it's your call. <laughs> you know? And I'm the big fat loser, like getting drunk every time. Yeah. But you know, yeah. it was. But you were having so much fun doing it, you made people want to join. I couldn't. You. I couldn't see it. Yeah. 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 And it was fun in their presence, and then it was later. Right. So most yeah. people, a lot of people, didn't see how bad it got. My husband right. did. Yeah. That was part of this too. Leaving perfectly nice evenings out. To go home and drink like I wanted to, yeah, unapologetically. Well, I actually was thinking about it when we we got together the other day, starting out this long weekend, and I was thinking like, I never would have. I mean, unless it was going to be a rager, and the four of us were assured to just be here with, you know, bottles and bottles Copious of wine. Amounts, yeah, yeah, like. If it were just a normal girls' weekend, I would have been like, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, I'm all set. I'm all set. I, I can't I can't do that. Don't these people know how busy I am? And I can't I can't you know take the time mm-hmm. to make this happen and mm-hmm. and then run the risk of having to you know share what was really going on with me. I didn't even know what was going on with me. Yeah. Well, because yeah. you can't escape, right? Like, so you can't go home at the end of the night and drink, like, the way that you want to if you're away with people, people yeah. for a weekend. I hated that. Yeah. Yeah. This is also a point where I did a lot of doctor shopping. I did. I was oh. looking for a diagnosis of something. I was postpartum depression or it was anxiety, and I would go see therapists, and I would tell them everybody, everything but how much I drank. Mm. And if they asked me how much I drank, I would minimize it or outright lie. Not because I thought I had a problem necessarily, but because it wasn't really any of their business. You know, that's not the problem. The other part, the other thought that occurred to me was the, um, the, the phrase, like, most people structure their drinking around their life, and I would structure my life around my drinking. Mm. To Catherine's example right there, mm-hmm. that it wasn't... Um, but it wasn't a conscious choice. It was I just made sure, no matter what situation I put myself in. An example of this would be, um, I wouldn't let my kid sign herself up for a sports activity that needed a pickup at eight o'clock unless I could find somebody else to give her a ride. And I never said to myself because eight o'clock is when I'm drinking. Right. I said that's, really that's up too late for her to be out for sports. She needs to do homework. And so my life came to a grinding halt by five o'clock every night by design. Because that's when I wanted to make sure that I could drink without having consequences. We hear that a lot from from moms in particular. Yeah. Who say like, oh, you know, the, the school dances and the sports and the whatever. Mm-hmm. 
it became it was a, it was an inconvenience. Things in my life that were what would have been a joy otherwise in my sober life were an inconvenience because they interfered. They interfered. How you needed to be. And I was singularly unapologetic about that. It wasn't it wasn't something that I felt defensive or guilty about. But you then, certainly wouldn't have said to someone, I'm not signing them up for soccer because that interferes with no, my drinking time. No. You said that's too late. That's too late for her. And yeah. then you probably add on like, you know, parenthood is stressful, so I, oh, I deserve gosh, my drink yeah. glass yeah. of wine. Yeah. I've just worked a full day home with these kids and right. So it sounds like all of us were in a problem, unaware what the problem was, projecting outward that there was a problem. With the possible exception of Amanda, who was having a good old time and did <laughs> not even know there was a problem. I know I actually knew there was a problem and I didn't I accepted the fact that there was a problem and I was okay with it. Oh right, right. I had like this weird like Which I is your version of sorry to interrupt, but it's your version of normalizing it. Just yeah. like, this is my normal. Like this is my normal. I'm a party girl, deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like that that was me. I was just, you know, this is who I am. I don't have kids. I have a good job. I have a house. You can't tell me what to do, and I would just normalize it. Like, I'm not hurting anyone, and I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah, that was a big one. I was like, who am I hurting? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really? I'm getting to work every day, and I'm a contributing member of society, oh, yeah. and I'm not as bad as Buddy up the street. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. He's Or Buddy problems. crashed on my couch. In my case, I, I conveniently married somebody who is older and more progressed in his disease than me, so I... Mm-hmm. I could blame it all on him and say, well, I'm not that bad. Right. Yeah. Right. So maybe listeners find themselves in pre-contemplation at this stage, but probably if you're listening to the bubble hour, you're at the very minimum in the contemplation stage, which is where you start to acknowledge that something isn't right. And I wrote a post about these stages of change on Unpickled. The post is called How I Knew It Was Time to Quit Drinking, and I sort of view my awakening to my problem through the lens of this change model. And for this stage of contemplation, I wrote, I began to feel an acknowledgement and growing discomfort with the reality of my habits. I started to pay attention to the red flags. I began watching celebrity rehab with intense (laughs) focus while drinking. So still in the problem, but starting to realize, oh, I got a little problem with my drinking. And... I didn't know what to about it. I didn't want to stop yet. I, but I definitely started to feel like, oh crap, I think I know what the problem is. So this was me in front of the computer with a glass of wine, (laughs) with like one eye closed, trying to read. And I can remember going to the Alcoholics Anonymous website. They have a quiz that's like, 12 questions it's on our it's on our website on the bubble hour website yeah. thank you it's like 12 questions you know that may signal you have a problem and it's like you know have you ever vowed to stop for a week or you know have you ever missed work because of um you know because of your drinking do you have blackouts so i would ca- i was carefully picking my way through these questions like well, okay, blackouts, yes. Only every once in a while, but yes. And then it was like, do you drink in the morning? No. <laughs> do you drink alone? No, that's only alcoholics do that. Then, um, do, have you ever missed work? Well, like maybe, but you know, I mean, okay, so sometimes I'm hungover at work. But So I carefully pick my way through these questions, and I remember thinking that, However many it was, like five out of 12 were yeses, so that was like probably okay, if not good. 
And I get to the bottom and they say, if you answered even one of these questions, (laughs) but that's not the funny part. (laughs) The funny part is that I went back to the same website at least that I remember two other times, (laughs) took the exact same quiz, knowing what that tagline was at the bottom, and hoping for a different outcome. And if there's anything that describes 15 years of alcoholic drinking Mm -hmm. in my life, it's that, that I hoped for a different outcome every single time. Like, maybe this is the time that I can control my drinking. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe now it will be different than it is. Like, I was in magical thinking for 15 years. And we all know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Amen. (laughs) And, Ellie, you were talking about justifications, like the the one that struck me when he said, um, but you stopped while you were pregnant. Yeah, it it was not only trying to find ways to sort of disqualify myself from the alcoholic or problem drinker club. I was trying to add evidence into the other column of I can't be because. And I I lived in this stage, this contemplation stage, for years. I mean, it was probably six or seven years where, and it, it progressed over those six or seven years. But, for instance, when I was pregnant with my daughter, my first child, it I didn't, I didn't drink. It wasn't some sort of moral high ground. And for whatever reason, I felt pretty good as a pregnant lady. I had this great identity. Look at the pregnant lady. And so I would go 10 months, 11 months without drinking. And I'd put a big fat check in the I can't be an alcoholic column. Totally ignoring the fact that I'm building a column of lists where I can't be an alcoholic. That didn't enter into my You mean not everybody has that column? Not everybody has no. that list, apparently. But So I would have like 900 checks of the, oh, maybe I'm in trouble, and then one big check that I can't be because, and then conveniently looking for the evidence to support that. Like I ignored the fact that I weaned my daughter at three months because it was really a bummer to try to fit my nursing schedule mm-hmm. around an infant. And I would feel those little tugs of guilt and I would feel those little, like, something, it's not, this is not right. But look, I stopped drinking for 10 months when I was pregnant. I used the I've never had a drink in, a mor- in the morning excuse for a long time because that was a real alcoholic. Yes. Capital R, capital A. I used the working, I have a great job excuse. I, I mean, I would, I would sort of picture in my mind what I thought of as, like, a, what a real alcoholic looked like. And it's astonishing the power of this wishful thinking, this kind of the denial structure that we build around yeah. our um, our maladaptive behaviors because if, if I go on a hunt for evidence to the contrary, I can always find it and conveniently ignore the things that are speaking the other way. The other piece of this is the the moving of the line. You know, mm-hmm. if I... Um, I'll just This didn't happen to happen to me, but I'll give an example. Like, you get pulled over for a DUI, and you say, well, you know, that's really bad luck. I mean, I didn't eat dinner that night. That and I cop just was to, a real that pill. That cop was a real pill, you know, and so that was, that was really, really bad luck. But I am never going to drink and drive again because I just don't want to have that kind of bad luck again. This is what I mean by structuring your life around your drinking and not your drinking around your life. Um, but then, oh my gosh, lo and behold, you're out of wine and you've been drinking and you have to go to the store to get more. Well, I know I've been drinking, but I'm going to drive just this once. And you keep, I just would keep moving that line or I would say things like, I only drink when my kids are asleep. So I'm not really hurting them. I'm not really, it's not really an issue. And if I ever start to do that, I'm going to, I'll really curb my drinking. 
And before I know it, I'm starting to drink at four or three in the afternoon without even thinking about that rule that I, I would justify it some other way. Like, well, today was a particularly hard day. Or, and I'm cooking. And I'm cooking. And, you yeah. know, why not? And <clears throat> that those, the, the lines became blurrier and blurrier as to where it was that I, I mean, the line, the, virtually there was no line because I would conveniently move it. Yeah. Did, it did, if it didn't I fit was, my argument I was for how that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I'm going to throw out a question of um, what were some of the, I'm not an alcoholic because, yeah. I can't be an alcoholic because, dot, 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 Catherine, do you remember some of yours? Um, yeah, I have, I work really hard. I'm a, I have a high powered job. Um, and, and I keep getting promoted in that job. Yeah. Um, that was, mm -hmm. I love that one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did yeah. you have any? That, well, that was, that was mine. And I also had, you know, some examples in my life, uh, family members that had, you know, jail time and stuff like that. And so I was like, well, no, they're an alcoholic. I might had you know, have a little problem sometimes. I, you know, I overdo it sometimes, but I had, you know, that's, that's what an alcoholic looks like. Not, they don't look like me. I, I have a great job and I can do anything. Right. I can remember actually getting up in the morning for a long period of time and I would go swim in the morning at six o'clock in the morning and I would have active thoughts as I'm doing strokes <laughs> through the water. Like alcoholics totally don't do that. <laughs> I would literally have that thought in my I head. I did stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hungover, but I'm swimming, you know, look at me go. And, and I have friends with lots of people that would, you know, the marathon runners or exercise gurus oh, or yeah. yoga instructors or, I mean, that the, the self-selecting out based on profession was a big Mm -hmm. Other or, yeah. valid, healthier lifestyles. I right? would also to take like one that big fat check in the in the no column somehow would balance out like ten thousand. <laughs> yeah, I I I gave unequal balance to I couldn't be that bad. And and I I had this thing that I used to say that strikes me as so dim now. But I would say I would say. Well, you know, I maybe abuse alcohol sometimes, mm. but that doesn't mean I'm an alcoholic. And I never would say to myself, I can stop at any time, because you always hear that as one of those, like, you know, PSA, public service yeah, like announcement. A, a things alcoholics say. Things alcoholics <laughs> I can quit at any time. And I would be like... So you knew better than to say So that. I wouldn't say that, but I would be like... But why would I want to? Yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't want to, so. Yeah. I really leaned on my you? stigmatized vision of what an alcoholic was. Yeah. I'd say things to myself like, well, I have all my own teeth. Like, as if. <laughs> you have to have your teeth fall out. Yeah. Right. Before you can be an alcoholic. And I also thought I had a friend who I would be like, oh, we'd be drinking wine. And I'd say, oh, hi, do I need to quit? And She's like, no, you're fine. If you're an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. And then I would think, well, I can't call myself an alcoholic because that would hurt her feelings. <laughs> yeah. I'd be calling her an alcoholic. Kind of you. And she's a really good person, and she does a lot. She's not an alcoholic, yeah. so I can't. Yeah. You know, next yeah. up in Ellie. the bubble hour, codependent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 Ellie and I used to ask each other. Like, yeah. We, we were... We were Check each other's boxes. Like that was a, <laughs> over wine at lunch. Yeah. But I, lunch. I had um I had like one of the best validations I had was um I uh, I had a little legal trouble as some people know and I was court so my probation officer sent me to see 
uh, addictions therapist to evaluate me to see if I had a problem. And so the same question, except for it was like five billion questions. It was literally an hour of answering all those 20 questions, but way more. And you had to rate different things in your life. And I managed to, I went there, first of all, I was still drinking. I went there and I said that um, I told, when I sat down to review the form with the therapist, I told her that I wasn't drinking, that I had gotten in a little trouble and I just thought it better that I stay away for now. And we went through the questions and, and she talked to me for a good hour and she said, you know, well, I don't really think you're an alcoholic. I think, you know, you can probably have a couple glasses of wine mm-hmm. at night and <laughs> It was just, I was like, I game left there, I was like, woo, on. game yeah. on. And like brought home, like I went to my probation officer, <laughs> like, see, I don't have to go to a program, I don't have to go to A, I don't have to, you know, she Never checked mind me as F-I-N-E. And, um, Never mind that you're going to your probation, probation officer. officer. Right. I have, I have heard it said that if you have had legal trouble because of your drinking, Chances are. Chances are. Right. I think that's question 10 on the A. Yeah. yeah. One of my other favorite stories with Amanda, for those of you who are new to the show, Amanda and I grew up together and we've been friends for a long time, but I think we were probably in our 20s and Amanda's uh, father was in recovery and the two we had started to have these kind of semi-drunken conversations about whether or not we had a <laughs> drinking problem and Amanda actually went to her father and was like, Ellie and I don't want to be alcoholics because we never want to stop drinking. Is that a bad sign? <laughs> <laughs> no, I said, what do we do so we don't become alcoholics? Because we, we don't really want to stop that. drinking. Yeah. What did he say? He said, perhaps you might already have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he has given you permission to talk about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we, he has. We've given talked about him before. Permission to talk about him yeah. on the yes. show. Yes. Okay, so we're talking about the stages of change. So we've talked about pre-contemplation, where you're not aware, not ready, that what the problem is. Contemplation, where you start to twig in that, uh-oh, I think it might be the alcohol. And preparation is where you start gathering information, making plans, start gearing up to make a change. Um, so during preparation is when we start to develop willingness we may not have it yet but we start to look at what is it going to take to solve this problem i would say most people move into the preparation phase of change thinking how can i solve this without quitting drinking absolutely for me i think it was the only place i could get into preparation because if i had thought the the only answer to this is going to be that i have to stop drinking I, I mean, I think actually I lived in a place where if that's going to be the only answer, I'll just stay right where I am. Right. Yeah. You know? I'm just fine, Jack. Well, yeah. sort of. And I think that's why a lot of people in this stage, they start with preparation and they try to moderate. Mm-hmm. And this is where a lot of us find, oh, beep, boop, I cannot moderate. Right. <laughs> Which further... Or you can moderate for a day. Yeah, right. But two. you can't string a couple of days together. And so that, for a lot of us, is a is another confirmation that yeah. I do have a problem. I, I want to throw a quick plug in, this strange way to phrase it, for the binge drinkers, though, because I, I know that that particular pattern of drinking comes with its own kind of symptomology, and, and it can be actually very difficult, I think, to mm-hmm. kind of figure out where you fit in in the spectrum of addiction when you're a binge drinker. And that, to me, in this in this preparation phase, in this moderation phase, that's when I started to pay attention. Maybe explain binge drinking. Binge drinking would be you could go for days, weeks, sometimes even months without drinking, but then when you drink, you go all out. 
and like or you don't work, know what's gonna happen and you don't know what's gonna happen and you um look, can drink for days on end you can typically black out or not but it tends to be um or a day or just a one day night. it can but, be one but, night of, but or like, sleep with your husband you settle in and you don't know what happened right <laughs> no i mean you hear stories you do i didn't drink for six weeks or six months yep and then i went out and suddenly i find myself in some scenario when you drink you find yourself in situations that would not happen to you if you were if right. you were sober and um, oh no, I'm gonna lose my train of thought. Here we go. Oh, this is when I in, when in this stage is when I started to pay attention to or have an awareness of the lack of an off switch. Right. And that meaning, if I had one, I had very little control over how many more I had or what happened. And that can be something that's very common in a binge drinking pattern. That you can actually you do not de drink daily, but when you do drink, that off switch becomes something that's impossible to moderate. And do you think that in this stage too, because you're aware of what the problem is that's when those things really start to become apparent mm -hmm. so i mean it you start to realize that there's no off switch and you start to question what am i going to do about this and i think by this stage a lot of us have quite an obsession with alcohol trying to fit it into our lives and that almost morphs into for many people an obsession with with looking at the solution, reading the blogs online, mm -hmm. thumb in eye, as Catherine thumb says, <laughs> doing the quiz over and over again, maybe mm -hmm. trying to tweak your answers so that you'll get a different mm -hmm. outcome, mm -hmm. um, and doing a lot of these things. So I, I think that's right. That's what you're talking about. I think Ellie is assessing the relationship. You're sorry, assessing yep. your relationship good with, with alcohol, yep. and whether it's a binge drinking kind of one, which can be really hard, but people can really justify that binge drinking thing. I mean, it yeah. was my cousin's wedding. Right, right, right. Of course, right. I went all out. Right, yeah. It was a convention. You should have seen my cousin Susie. She was ten times worse. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. You know what she, I? You know what I used for like, um, and I don't know which it, it for like till I was thirty-five or maybe even longer. It was, I didn't go away to college. I commuted to college. So I'm just, re I'm making up for lost time. Mm -hmm. That would be my excuse to go, like when I went all out crazy, I was just like, I never had those college days. Right. And right. I would use it, I was like 35. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was my 43rd birthday. <laughs> but Amanda, yeah. you were talking about identifying with books and stuff, like how stuff started popping up. Yeah, like I, I like I didn't never contemplated drinking. It was unfathomable to me. Just yeah, absolutely not, not drinking. Not drinking. Not Sorry, drinking. Yeah. not drinking. And so even though I had like been sent to these programs, it was it was never the option was never to stop drinking. It was I did try moderating. I did try you know drinking different things, alternating with water. I had all these little games that I played. It was exhausting. Mm -hmm. But, and I learned, I had to go to different classes. So I would learn different things in the class. And then I used to read a ton of nonfiction, like murder mystery. And it seemed like it would, you know, when I guess it was, I never consciously said, oh, I might need to start thinking about stopping drinking. But all of a sudden, every book I read, there was an alcoholic character. And then, like, you would hear these commercials. And on the radio would be something about drunk driving. And it was, like, everywhere I turned, it would... And what it was, it was... It was in my... Con it had moved from my subconscious to my conscious without me knowing it, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. so I was aware... Like, I refused to... No, that's what it was. I refused to consciously acknowledge that 
I was thinking that I might actually have a problem, except for to say, you know what, the, um, so, but it would, it would pop up in my subconscious because I was very in tune to, I was looking for the invisible line. I was looking for that line to say, okay, you know, the gig is up. Mm-hmm. But it's an invisible line. You were looking for justification that you were still on the right side of yeah. the invisible line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ellie, when did you buy the book Drinking? You were saying that the I other bought, day you yes. bought it and then you were hiding it. Yeah, I bought the book Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp in um, 1997. And I read that uh, memoir. It's a fantastic book. I recommend it to anybody. And I finished the book that I actually wrote in my journal after I read it. I, uh, these are the exact words I said. I think I'm standing on the abyss of something dark and bottomless that if I'm not careful, it's going to swallow me whole. And now that I'm reiterating the story, I realize I never said alcohol or alcoholism. I just said it. it. Like I knew there was an it. And I took that book and I literally hid it in my underwear drawer like a, like a little secret because I kind of I had this this sense that boy, that was a cautionary tale. I better be careful that I don't go there. And it was 10 years after I read that book that I eventually got sober. And lo and behold, I followed the almost the identical arc that her disease did. As most, you know, this it's a very predictable, you know, arc of, of progression. Oh, yeah. But that was, it was not anything that ever went from, oh, that's dangerous, I better stop drinking. It was, I better make sure that that never becomes me. And don't you think, in retrospect, the fact that you hid it... Hid it! It's so yeah. telling, because I bet if you read a book on, oh, I don't know, gluten... Right. And you're wondering, am I gluten intolerant? I better hide I this I would book. not put that in my underwear yeah. drawer. No, I would not. This phase also is when I started doing the um, all the, the contortions that we do to be able to... Like, Amanda mentioned drinking a drink and then water, and then this is when I put all of the things in place, like, only on the weekends or only three glasses a night, or only wine and not liquor, and um, that, that whole theory about moving the line comes into play here. I'd have three glasses, but they were humongous glasses, or you know, I, w- I could make it maybe three or four weeks following my quote-unquote rule, and then I would say, well, I did it for four weeks, this is fine, I can go back. But any time I tried to moderate like this, when I did drink, I drank more. Yeah. Yeah. That's I drank my was, experience. Was this also like, so I had a phase where, yeah, I was definitely in that space of, um, there's a slogan that says, if you spot it, you got it. Mm. So I, I remember seeing in a magazine an interview with Michael J. Fox where he talked about getting sober. And I was like, whoa. And I found myself really attracted to sobriety stories. But I'm mindful of there's there's in some of the recovery literature of the program that I'm in there's a paragraph that says here are some of the things that we tried and it talks about all the things like changing your type of liquor but one of them that I really identify with is um you we read spiritual books Mm. or self-help books or something like that and that was me I was on like I know a woman in in recovery um, in my city where she says I did everything from primal scream to, <laughs> you know, and like you, even even therapy, and mm-hmm. I was reading self-help books and spiritual texts, and I was like, so I don't know if that's this phase, but I was trying different things that. to make my life better, mm-hmm. so I, could, I wasn't looking directly at the sun, you know, exactly. of alcohol. Exactly. But I think little by little during this stage, we start to inch toward 
willingness, right? Mm -hmm. We start to think, okay, I'm starting to get a picture of what the reality is of my situation. I'm starting to get an idea of what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And that willingness does start to grow in its preparation stage. Sort of bubbles up. And I think also it's important to mention that, we may have mentioned this before, but that that I would sort of, I would tip into willingness for a while and then slip back again. And, you know, I'm almost I, ready, I'm not almost ready. Almost ready, I'm not ready. I approached that line several times over before the willing, it, but each time, and it bears mentioning, each time I did, something a little more took root. I mean, it was, you know, that the willingness is really the key that unlocks the door to the rest of what we're going to talk about. And any right. little bit of willingness I got eventually ended up helping me get to recovery. And when, so when we talk about that willingness, it's it's also, I guess, worded as a desire to stop drinking, a deep desire to stop drinking. Mm. Even though you keep drinking, you want to stop, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where willingness comes in. And then the willingness to, excuse me, the willingness to, I'm willing to get uncomfortable in order right. to stop. Right, right. And I think moving on to... Um, the next stage, which is action, is where we can kind of say, this is where, as you said, people like get up to it, get their, look over the diving board, oh, back off. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got one day, oh, I back off. And so we hear from a I lot of people. I have a week, I have a month, right. I have 90 days. I've gone back. And people and run back, back and forth yeah. on that diving board, to continue mm-hmm. that analogy, to a number of times. Mm-hmm. Like <clears throat> some people do it every day for years. Today's the day I'm going to quit. Mm-hmm. Four o'clock. No, it's not. Tomorrow might be the day, but today is definitely not going to be the day. And uh, someone cut me off in traffic. That's it. I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. And we hear from listeners of the show and people that connect with us online that that they're really frustrated by that back and forth of I'm trying to quit and I can't and I'm am I ever going to get this? And Dr. John Kelly was on this show and he said for some people it can take years before they ever string together a successful year of sobriety. Was the average six years before people are in like solid long-term? I mean, that might have included some sobriety, but it was like that. Back and forth for years. It doesn't have to be that way, but it certainly isn't abnormal to be that way. And really what that represents, I think, is the back and forth between the preparation phase and the action phase and really getting into that action phase and, and staying there. Um, and initiating change. And this is really the meat of it. Because when we talk about getting unstuck, mm-hmm. I think people get up to the preparation willingness and they just can't get into that action. And they say, how do I do it? Like, how do I make this work? And you're like, well, okay, do you wanna not drink? Yeah, I don't wanna drink. Have you stopped drinking? I'm trying to stop. Okay, are you doing anything else? No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, let's develop some action. So I think we want to talk about that. What are some actions that each of us took that made a difference? I saw a meme on the internet that was, do you remember Skeletor from the cartoon? Yeah, He-Man. And it's Skeletor and it says something like, uh, my change begins when I get tired of my own... BS. And so for me, the first change was getting honest that I have no off switch. Once I start drinking, I cannot stop. 
It doesn't matter the consequences. It doesn't matter what I said I was responsible to do. So my first like change was, and I say it all the time on the show, is asking myself the question, like starting to question my thinking, is this true? So when it was like, you know, I can't go home from work and not have a glass of wine. I can't go to dinner with my partner and not have fun. Um, you know, whatever. Is this true? So my first thing was being like Skeletor, like getting over my own BS. Mm-hmm. And it was piled high. I yeah. think too. I mean, I I always come from it from a from my own story perspective, which is the only one I have, my own experience, but. I have such great admiration when I talk to people who begin this into action phase, the getting unstuck phase. Um, I, th- I think, well, let me back up. I think, I think pain is always a motivator, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. And I lived in this, this gray area of, there were definite consequences for my drinking. I was having definite emotional losses. I was beginning to have physical problems with alcohol. Didn't have any legal consequences or things like that yet. And I would have flashes of lucidity. I definitely understood it was revolved around my drinking. And I'd be willing to try a little something. And I'm hoping desperately the entire time that the answer was still not going to be that you have to stop drinking. So I did not have that sort of the skeletor moment of I'm tired of my own BS. And I think for me, the purpose of a show like this and of the sharing of these different phases is the gift of having an awareness that pushes you into action before it goes right, you know, as absolutely far as it can go. And for me, that looked like forcibly sent into treatment because I ignored so much of this part of this phase. I had the awareness. I understood that I was an alcoholic. I knew I had a problem with drinking and I was still looking for a softer, gentler way Mm -hmm. to quote unquote feel better. And the suggestions that were given to me over those periods of time, things like maybe you should go to a recovery meeting or maybe you should ask for help, or those were so uncomfortable for me that I didn't want to acknowledge that advice. I didn't want to say, yeah, I'll try that. I stayed in my discomfort because it was familiar mm-hmm. to me. And I think this is really the, the bugaboo about this stage is that on the receiving end of people asking for help now, I, I, I see this a lot of... What is it that I need to do to go into action? And I'll say, well, this is what worked for me. And I, you know, somebody might say, yeah, but mm. that's not going to work for me because, or I'm not willing to do that, which is fine. But we're back to the willingness piece. I mean, I sort of the long explanation to back into the sense I wish I had paid attention to my resistance yeah. Yeah. to the advice that I was getting. You know, I don't want to go into a meeting because somebody I know might see me. What, why am I resisting? Why does that make me so uncomfortable? Can we talk about some of the types of resistance that we put up? Mm-hmm. So maybe we were willing and maybe we even put down the drink. But I know I had a lot of resistance. So like what were some of... I, I, had, a, I had for a few months I couldn't call myself an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I, had, oh, yeah, I, I had stopped drinking mm-hmm. and I would say, well, I don't know what you, you call it, but I know I can't control my drinking. But right. I, I had a hard time calling myself an alcoholic. It took me three or four months, and I had to surround myself by people who were really cool in recovery and who I really respected, and they called themselves alcoholics, and I had to get comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. But what, like, Jean, what were some of your resistances? resistance? 
Um, well, I think I, I didn't want to assume a shame identity. I mean, I, you know, that's the language of Brene Brown that we're, mm-hmm. we've gotten very familiar with. But I think in retrospect, that was a big thing for me. I did not want to tarnish the perfect, I thought, image that I'd built for myself, the perfect track record. I didn't want this to be true. And I thought I was going to ruin my marriage because I did not think my husband would want to go on vacation with someone that couldn't drink wine with lovely dinners. Or, you know, it didn't occur to me that I was maybe harming my marriage by being bombed every night. Maybe that wasn't making me very good. <laughs> well, that's not hot. smeared all over your face when you're like 45 is just not hot. (laughs) I also really, I did not want to um, go to recovery meetings because I felt like I was going to be associating with a shame identity and those people and I couldn't be like them. And I also thought I can't share. It's none of their business. What what happened to me, and I'm just going to take care of this on my own. I, I can do this on my own. I'm just going to stop. I told my therapist, that was a skeletal moment, and I told my husband. Um, but I also tried to power through my life as it was, just without drinking. So, like, I would still go to this. I wouldn't go to, like, wine bars, but I, we would still, like, go out to dinner in the same place and, like, you know, do, you do everything the same, but just not drink. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and I, that's torturing ret- yourself. In retrospect, like, yeah, it was it was more torturous than it needed to be. But I was like, I am not a sharer. I don't share. And like, what I've since somebody said that to me recently, and someone who's kind of in the preparation stage and said, I'm not a sharer. And I said, that's because you don't share. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you share, you'll yeah, be a sharer. But, yeah. but like, and I'm not trying to be, you know, sort of cute about it. But I really was like, these people, I am not, I am not going through something where I am going to tell somebody all of my deepest and darkest secrets. And it is just going to be, I'm going to be full of shame. Mm-hmm. And they are going to shame me. And I don't think that's, that's right for my recovery. So I am not going mm. to do that. You know, that's. A, a really good point. Like, is, were any of you before getting into recovery? Because I know I certainly wasn't. I don't think I ever sat and told someone my whole like story, all my deep dark secrets. I mean, that's yeah. just something I had to my like, therapist. I needed to do to get better. I had to my therapist with with the exception of I didn't tell her that I thought I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Leaving because out that's what I was gonna say about the. I had, I felt like I had part. already told her. All of my stuff. Mm-hmm. I, this is Jean. I have to say, having tried, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 times to quit drinking, the thing that was different on the day I successfully quit was that I told someone and I told her the damn truth. Yeah. 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 yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, you can say, oh, maybe I need to quit. I think I'm drinking too much. But I told her the truth. I said, this is how much I drink every day mm-hmm. yeah and that was that was the beginning of something new 
So I, I think telling someone is one of the first and most important action stages you could do. And telling your other friend who's drunk with you <laughs> doesn't qualify. No, doesn't work. No. So think about who you're telling. Yeah. And tell the truth. That reminds me of a lot. Of, one of my big resistance pieces was, well, first of all, you could label me anything you wanted to, but do not label me an alcoholic. You know, I'm willing to be depressed or even psychotic or anything, but not alcoholic. And that was, you know, now in the with the. Uh, clarity of the side of the fence I can look back and say I was terrified I was terrified that somebody would say yes you definitely are but it was also just massive amounts of ego I'm smart I've gotten myself myself out of every other bind I've ever been in I'm going to get myself out of this one too and the suggestion would come back you need to ask for help absolutely not Mm -hmm. that was the thing that I and even when I put the drink down and kind of sat in the back of recovery meeting or kind of reluctantly told people yeah I'm here but I mean I was I had to push it to the point where I was in a lot of hot water before I would even begin to sort of edge up to the recovery crowd right but you weren't going to get me to ask for help because that's weak and vulnerable and scary to me but it can be that sounds that's a vague thing to say to somebody who's kind of in this early action phase of like ask for help like I don't, I don't need your help. Right. I'm employed. Right. Like, this was me. Right. Yeah. I'm employed. That implies that I yeah. need help. You're em- <laughs> like, yeah. my help, now I'm being honest, I can no longer safely drink. Right. Got it. Right. What do I now need help with? Yeah. Right. Like, well, how do you do it? What, what reminded me mean? of that was when Jean said I told the damn truth, because that was what asking for help looked like right. for me. Yeah, What it I looked agree. like for me was, you know, I hide bottles all over my house and I can't remember the next morning where they are and I can't and this is after being dry for a while this is after kind of like even after I put the drink down and I'm forced into some sort of program or something I was totally reluctant to come actually clean with how bad it really was and so those those two things came hand in hand for me Mm -hmm. I can't ask for help for something I don't need help with yeah but the minute the truth was out and I got, I choked it out and was able to say what it was, then the help kind of came even if I didn't want, it broke me is what it did. It broke me. It got yeah. rid of that sense that I can do this on my own. Because if there's one thing we always default back to in this show, it's the power of community, the power of a shared experience. You can't be part of a shared experience if you're not putting your experience on the table with things that have happened to you. And you know, here's something that came as a big surprise to me. I did not expect this when I embarked on change in my life. Um, People that are in recovery are overjoyed to help Mm. others get recovery. I was scared if I tried to reach out to people in recovery, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you're not bad enough to be here. You're not not screwed up enough. Because I thought I was so much better than everyone else. But I also felt that I wasn't good enough for them either. But... I did not know that for one of the steps for people that are in a 12-step program is helping others. I had no clue. And so not only are most people really happy to do that, mm-hmm. they do it really well. They're well-equipped to do it. There's sort of a process. There's like, there's and it helps good them. It helps, yeah. and it it helps, helps our them. recovery to help other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, it's, and so it's not as though you're um, uh, looked down upon or... or anything it's that you're brought in brought into the fold right yeah and you're become part of of 
like a family support that doesn't have a huge hierarchy, that isn't mm-hmm. judgmental, that doesn't say you're not bad enough or you're too bad. Or yeah. I mean, don't forget, you're, you're scared to walk in a room because you're scared of who's going to be there. But those people are scared too. And those people and they're are there for the same reason. there for the same reason. Yeah. So they're more yeah. likely to say, welcome, glad you're here. Yeah. I'm like you or, you know, this is, this is where you need to be. Then, oh my God, can you believe that Ellie walked into a 12-step meeting? Yeah, literally nobody Tweet. is saying that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This reminds me of something that um, somebody, when I was at this stage of into action, part of it that, that they said to me, and I, I mean, I, I am and was a hard case. I mean, I really, I, re, I had a lot of resistance and a lot of kicking and screaming. And she said to me, instead of looking at what you're willing to do, why don't you look at what you're not willing to do? Mm-hmm. Oh. And why? Yikes. And that didn't really sink in right away, but it did after a while. Like, try the thing that you don't want to try. Go to the uncomfortable place. And then even after my relapse, when my continued recovery relied on making changes, I couldn't, I couldn't just go back to doing the same thing I had always done in recovery before because clearly there were things that needed to be changed. I had to go back and say, now what part of it didn't I want to do? What part of it did I think wasn't necessary for me? And now when faced, I think I said this on last, last week's show, when faced with the comfortable choice or the uncomfortable choice, I mean, I always make the uncomfortable choice, but I know that's the one that's going to lead to change. Well, can me. we talk about how annoying it is yeah. when somebody tells you to take a sober action that's yeah. different than the one you want to take? Like, yeah, it's irritating. <laughs> I mean, my ego just goes, yeah. oh my gosh, really? Shut up. Yeah. So give an example of that. What would a sober action be? Well, like a sober action now in my life might be when there's drama with my friends and a relationship and a, you know, a boyfriend is acting crazy. Like I want to get involved and a sober action would be to stay uninvolved. Or um, if I'm having a problem at work with my boss, for example, a sober action might be in my case, because I'm a 12-stepper, to, to call my sponsor and do some step work around that, which is, what's my part in this resentment against my, bo- against my boss? Really? Like, what are you making me do that for? How is that going to I shared about that, about my work, being overwhelmed at work, and I thought, I was so mad. How is this? Mm-hmm. And I, oh, and I had done a shorthand version of the finding your part, like a shorthand fear inventory that I had found or somebody sent me. And my sponsor, who's so nice, was like, well, but, you know, I only know how to do it this way, which is the full-on, like, several columns of analysis, of self-analysis. I was bitter. Mm. And I thought that this stupid structure was never going to work for my problem, which had nothing to do with my drinking because I've been sober now for, you know, over two and a half years. And how is it going to fix the fact that I'm overwhelmed by how busy and hard my job is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it did. I thought, this isn't going to change my work. And it didn't. It changed me. It changed you. But I really resisted it. And I forced myself to do it. And Mm -hmm. I was mad and I was crying I was angry. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I, I get like that when, in terms of like a sober response that I get from people, if I've got some form of drama or some sort of feeling of victimization or can you believe what she did to me or what she said to me? 
and I'll go to somebody in recovery and I'll say this and they will not indulge. In yes. The they will not indulge in the problem with me. <laughs> and I, I just, I want to have a I hate session. that so much. I want, I want to just kind of, you know, I want them to fuel that righteous, indignant part of me. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of, I'd like, you know, the chaos junkie and the indulging right. in the righteous anger. The righteous yes. anger. And then she'll say, well, you know, how, why do you, why does that make you feel that way? What is that touching in you? And what can you change? Right. And she'll give me advice that I'll refuse to take because, or I'll just simply, you know, I'll ignore whatever she has to have to say and I'll continue to suffer for a little while longer and then go back to her again. And then she'll, you know, present the same problem. Like, well, what are you willing to change in yourself? To make the situation get better, but it's infuriating sometimes. <laughs> what to a have jerk. somebody say, <laughs> "Yeah, like I want her to say, I can't believe that she did that to you," and they don't because it's I don't control people, places, or things, and you yeah. know. But then it, that's another part of the paying attention to the resistance part of it. You know, I want a different answer. That's not the answer I wanted. I what wanted. What about you, Jean? Do you have what's a sober action that you bump up against? Well, I'm learning this. I mean, I you know I'm not in a formal program so I, I go searching for answers and and I use all different resources all different pathways inform that for me so I, I'll tell you one thing I told Catherine this morning is that you know what I, I listened to last week's podcast and I realized that I'm stuck on a story and when mm -hmm. I want to illustrate to people uh, something about my character I'll explain to them something crappy that someone did to me and I will repeat, you know, one particular incident that just illustrates how unfair this person is towards me and explains to you why I am the way I am. And I said to Catherine this morning, I said, you know what, I'm not going to tell that story anymore. I'm going I'm to put that story to bed. I'm not going to talk about these things in my life. I may say I have some baggage around loyalty or, you know, mm -hmm. family or something, but... I think I'm going to give up my story. And to me, that's a sober action, is to, is to surrender the storytelling mm. that, that really I really leaned on to not only identify my character and who I was and paint me as a, a, you know, a heroic role in that story, but also that um, made me blameless and maybe manipulated other people a little mm -hmm. bit too so that I want to make sure you see me a certain way. Right. So yeah, giving up that story, surrendering that, that's a sober action for me. Helping others is a sober action for me. And doing something differently. And that's a key one. And I think we wanted to make sure we mentioned this. We're rounding out the hour, it looks like. But I think we wanted to talk about doing something differently. And I, if you're stuck and you're saying, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this. And you know, I'm doing all these things that people say I should. But it's still hard and I'm still not happy and I'm still having slips or I'm, you know, I'm still obsessed. And, and I think sometimes when people say that, what they want is someone to say, oh, well then it's okay to drink, right. but it's not. The, the solution then is, well, okay, we need to do something differently. Now that doesn't mean zigzag. You tried this, okay, that's not working. Try a different program, try a different way. But what it means is let's add something. What can we add? As you said, what are you, what makes you uncomfortable to think about? Mm -hmm. Why does that make you uncomfortable? Maybe we need to explore that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, Don uh, Nickel, if she recovers this summer, I was really explaining to her my story. In fact, I was telling her the story that I no longer go around complaining about. And 
she said, you know, I think you need to add therapy into your, you know, why don't mm-hmm. you go into a therapist? I think a therapist is really what you need. And so I introduced that into my life and with the goal of that supporting my recovery, not fixing problems, not fixing other people, but enhancing my recovery. And it really did. That was a good sober action. I like that illustration. And one of the questions that pops into my head that might, I think it'd be interesting to hear all of us talk about too is, can you identify one or two places in your recovery journey where you made an uncomfortable choice and it was a game changer for oh, you? Yeah. That yeah. something was, that you did that was out of your other, you know, out of your comfort zone that you look back on and think that really took me down a different path. A great, I was a good thinking path. that that being vulnerable and sharing, opening up to people and sharing my stories and like my truth and what really happened to me what I really did you know just sharing my my emotions and you know getting to know people and and even actually just last week something an opportunity came up and I was resistant to tell my husband because I thought oh he's he's not going to want me to take it was it involved a trip and and a class and stuff and I didn't want to tell him that I wanted to do it and um, so I shared about it at a meeting and then somebody said to me after the meeting we were we were talking and somebody said well you know but if you don't tell him that this is on your mind then you're limiting his ability to truly connect with you and to like participate in your life and get to know you and, and have a moment of intimacy around this mm. this issue and that has been a theme in my recovery and so like i'm learning how to live and have relationships with other human beings mm-hmm. in recovery because of those game changers of like saying this is what's really going on inside of me mm-hmm. that's a great example how about you amanda um well for me i guess well one thing um just to back up a little my willingness lasted was maybe like a 24 hour thing right there was none until I got into trouble and I had an intervention and so you know that can happen too it can be that you're never ready like um, and I have a friend was in the same situation like thank God someone swooped in Mm -hmm. and said you need to get help because I was incapable of making that decision on my own absolutely incapable and I was gonna say when someone does an intervention for you they've done the contemplation and preparation stages for you and they dump you into action yeah Yeah. and because there was I I just you know to me it was making I thought it was making a decision to no longer have fun literally like that's what I thought like okay I'll just be like a nun I I, that is it was it went went from I was gonna go from you know like fun Amanda who sometimes got a little bit out of control to like boring like the most boring person in the world and so wait pause Everyone in the room who thinks Amanda is still fun, raise your hand. And so, yeah, my, 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 so it was, a, it was literally, you know, if they hadn't, my willingness may have stopped, it even ended if they hadn't come when they did. And because I was, I was in enough pain to make a change. So my action was, I dove in. Mm. And um, I did, I literally, I, I, I left my brain at the door 
and just said, you know, to myself, you know, you can, maybe you can do everything. You can build a patio, you're, you know, you're a success at work, you know, you can do all these different things, but you do not know how to stop drinking. So you need to ask these people how. You need to ask for help and help for me it meant getting rides. It meant, you know, I would I would share at meetings like Catherine said, and you know, people would say like you need to find spirituality, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I would go to meetings and I would say, you know, I'm really struggling with this. How do I do this? And people would tell me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I I guess I you know my action became like. Anything that people told me to do, I just did it without question. So what I was going to say, I don't mean to speak for you, but it bleeds into the, one of the things that I think was the game changer for me is that, that you took suggestions. I got a lot of suggestions, but it wasn't until I took them. Yeah. <laughs> I asked, You're supposed to take them? I yeah. asked for a lot of help, but I didn't let people help me. I mean, that, Well, that, what would you say to somebody who said, I am taking the suggestions, I am doing what you're saying, and it's not working, I'm still miserable, or I still am dying to drink, or, or I am still drinking? Say what you were saying earlier. About what? It helps if you... Oh, well, yeah, there's an anecdotal story to that, but I, I guess I'll tell the anecdotal story. There's There's situation that's come up a surprising amount of times where there's been people who have been trying to get sober and stop drinking and they're praying and they're talking to people and they're asking for help and they're following instructions and um, they have a strong desire to stop drinking but this actually happened to me in the context of a couple of recovery meetings where then somebody then said well you know this you're not drinking right and they said, well, well, wait a minute, but I'm praying, I'm doing all these things, but it, you know, I thought I just had to have a desire to stop drinking. And I said, well, this program works a lot better if you actually stop <laughs> drinking. So to answer Catherine's question, in, for me, at least invariably, I can drill down to the suggestions that have been given to me, and I, can, I have to look for the places where I made an exception or I did it sort of half-heartedly. Or I've been resist. There's always some piece of it that I have been resistant to. It's always there, and um, oftentimes that revolves around an untold truth. I just I've been that. It, a lot of times for me, it boils down to I've taken all the suggestions. Mm-hmm. I've done everything right, but I haven't been working with all of the information. Mm-hmm. I've left that one thing out or this one thing out, and so it almost always backs up to me of that. Let's get honest. Mm-hmm. Let's really get honest and look at that one thing that you've never wanted to look at or talk about that one thing. Um, I've, I've never encountered a time when things weren't working well for me in my recovery or any part of my life where people who had had a shared experience gave their advice and their suggestions to me and I took all of them and it didn't change the game for me. There's always been something that's been left out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, do you think that's a codependent thing? Because that was going to be my exact answer about what's a hard thing I had to do. Because I everything hard I've had to do came from telling the truth. It's related to telling the truth. Yeah. That's for me that's a self-centered fear of rejection. Yeah. I would think if I actually told the truth I have made up my mind what your response is gonna be. If I actually really get honest about that, you're not gonna like me. Right. That's a codependent thing. Right. But there's also some people who I just feel very protective of that, that that sort of vulnerability is just unacceptable. And every time I think to myself, there's got to be a way I can do it without that. Right. The that is what it is that I need to address. I have to share that I you know, I I 
think we all have things that we feel terrible about in our life that we carry around with us. And, and I was sharing with you guys yesterday, like, oh, I have to tell you guys something, you know, and I told you like some deep, dark, long burden secret about myself that, you know, um, details don't matter, but it's the fact that it's something that I carried around and really hated about myself and just thought, oh God, I'm spending two days with these women. I better just tell them, you know, this thing. And, and then everyone's like, oh, pff, me too. <laughs> <laughs> except, except for me. This is Ellie. I was like, oh, that hasn't really happened to me. And then I'm driving in the car with the mandolator and she looks at me. She's like, actually, that has happened to you. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah Get honest, know. Ellie. You know? It was very deep. And that's when I, I think we talk about the power of the me too experience. And you can't have a me too experience if you don't tell the truth. If you don't right. bring, if you don't bring exactly. it Exactly. And, and in that yeah. me too, I experience, I, you know, I had been like praying for, you know, could you just let me receive the forgiveness? I know that we're forgiven for things, but I can't feel it. And I really felt it in mm-hmm. that me too experience where yeah. you realize, you know, we're, yeah. we're all humans. We're very hard on ourselves. But okay. So to sum up action, I think we brought it down to do something, do something different, tell someone, get on it, do something different out, again, do something different again, add something more. Mm-hmm. Um, don't give up. If you, if you feel like, oh, I just can't make this work. It can just be that you're really hovering between a couple of phases and it can take a while to get there. And um, along those lines, I just wanted to add and be compassionate with yourself without letting yourself off the hook. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, Very I, I would one. I would try these things and they wouldn't work and it would back up and fuel my shame identity, would fuel my inadequacy, my inability to quote unquote get it. Mm-hmm. And every piece of this process, it's important to stop and say, this is a brave journey we're on whether we're trying to stop drinking or make any other hard changes in our lives and I I'll speak particularly for women I believe and definitely for me it's been something that I I'm not good at stopping and saying you're doing a hard thing and you know we talk about being in the arena and being out there trying and you know as a perfectionist if you don't hit it the first time and get it right, then you've failed the black and white thinking, but that this is a process and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And the beauty of the me too and the connection is that just this, this point in the time where I think I've failed or I'm the worst alcoholic ever or some sort of, I'm thinking some kind of superlative that's really awful for myself. It's completely normalized in a healthy way. Like, no, you're a human being and you're trying and we're here for you. Mm. But I have to maintain that balance of, but this is not to say, you know, I can't, now I don't have to get honest because right. I'm being so gentle on myself. So that balance between right. self Yeah, it can't be like, oh, I slipped and now, well, I, I might as well let me, yeah, I might going. as well keep going and, or yeah. like I can Before stop nothing. then again. Or, yeah, I tried. Or like, let me get a little a few more a few days under my belt before I tell anybody that I'm trying to get sober yeah. again like get some right of these stories you can be up. compassionate and honest at the same time and don't confuse somebody who's trying to be honest with you with somebody attacking you or shaming you like meaning another sober yeah, person right. like if a sober person is trying to give you a suggestion like chances are they're coming from a place of really trying to help you and they're mm-hmm. not trying to say you're a loser and they're not trying to shame you. It's like, yeah, the reason you're feeling shame is because it's you got it, you know. Right. And it's like right. it's it's kind of hitting a sore, tender spot. Mm-hmm. Which is why this is 
virtually impossible to do on your own. Right. You right. know, it's virtually impossible to do this with only your own thinking as the guide. That's so true. You know, you need somebody to be able to say, I've been there and I understand and this is what you need to do. And keep your perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Keep your perspective. And other people really help us do that because if we're left on our own, we can spiral into, I'm the worst. Right. But having other people around us, you know, being here with you guys, I told myself a story for a long time that alcoholics were losers and I couldn't be one because I didn't want to be a loser. And I can say categorically that you are not, not losers. losers. That's You're right. Awesome and a lot of fun. And it's really cool. Um, I know we need to wrap up. So this has been an amazing gathering. Yeah. Of, of Absolutely. Yes. It's just been so great. And we're really, really happy to share this little We've snippet of it. We've never all been in the same room at the same time. We've not. Yeah. It's We've awesome. Not. Yeah. And we're glad that um, our listeners got to join us for this little portion of it. And it was and cool that we bonded instantly. Like, we already had that on the phone, but it was, like, even even more comfortable. Like, yeah. it was just amazing. Like, oh, I've known you guys forever. It was just mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. So now my job is to close the show. And after a year of doing this, you would think that I could rattle this off in my sleep. But I'm going to read the official closing just so that we wrap up. Officially. Officially. Yes. <laughs> we don't want to leave you hanging, listeners. We like to be nice and neat. So uh, before we sign off, we just want to direct everyone to our parent organization. That's shiningstrong.org. And if you head over there, you'll find links to the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. And visit our Bubble Hour website at thebubblehour.com. And there's a link there to lots of recovery resources, including the quiz that we mentioned earlier, the assessment, and I will tip you off now that if you say yes to even one <laughs> question, you got a problem, so heads up on that. You'll find a link to my blog, Unpickled, and you'll also find our email address, which is thebubblehour at gmail.com. We invite you to give us some feedback, let you know, let us know how you liked the show or any suggestions for show topics that you have. And uh, let us know, you know, what's on your mind. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we're just really grateful that you listened to us. And we thank you for checking out the Bubble Hour. And we will see you next week. So good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. <laughs>